0: Those of us who work in this field and are proponents of the International Criminal Justice Project, the ideal for us is that all states sign up to the Rome Statute and everyone decides that crimes of this sort of gravity, it's important enough to have some sort of overarching jurisdiction at play.
1: Hello and welcome to Horsehair Wigs from me, Evelyn McClaverty, and Irish Rule of Law International. On this month's show, we're talking to Kate Gibson, who for almost 20 years has been appearing before International Criminal Court and tribunals, acting as a defence lawyer in some of the field's leading cases. We're accused of,
0: you know, being revisionists or denying crimes or trying to rewrite history or, you know, get killers back on the streets. That's not What our job
1: is. Kate has represented former Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadic, who was serving a life sentence after being convicted of genocide for the July 1995 Srebrenica massacre of more than 8,000 Muslim men and boys by Bosnian Serb forces. And she's also acted as co-counsel to the former Liberian president Charles Taylor, who was serving a life sentence for his role in the conflict in Sierra Leone. I
0: see us as like a crucial part of this trial process and really contributing to justice just as much as our colleagues in the prosecution, you know, across the courtroom, you know, we're all trying to head towards the same goal, which is a judgment that's reflective of the truth.
1: Kate talked about working at the International Criminal Court, the ICC in The Hague, the permanent court with jurisdiction over war crimes and other crimes against humanity, such as genocide, and which steps in when local jurisdictions fail to prosecute. She believes for there to be true democracy, all states need to sign up to the court and believe in it. Why is it
0: that some states are willing to subject themselves and their citizens to the jurisdictional reach of the court and others aren't? You know, this is politics.
1: In its 21-year history, the International Criminal Court has publicly indicted 52 people. With the exception of five Russians indicted during the current conflict in Ukraine, all other ICC indictees have been African or Arab. Kate's thoughts on this, that's exactly where she started. This is
0: one of the criticisms that we see regularly levelled at not only the ICC, but international criminal justice generally, being that it's a very politicised environment. You know, why do the prosecutors pursue defendants from one side of the conflict and not from the other? What is behind the choices as to who ends up being the defendants in the dock? Why are we always seeing defendants at the ICC from the Congo, from Mali, from the Central African Republic, and we don't see other defendants from other equally horrific situations around the globe? And, you know, more than that, why is it that some states are willing to subject themselves and their citizens to the jurisdictional reach of the court and others aren't this is politics that's so deeply entrenched in in the work that we're doing and it's why international justice doesn't yet have this universal reach and why we only see certain types of defendants in the dock. and I I think that that criticism is a valid one
1: Mm, it could just be labeled as so discriminatory
0: I think it's a question of whether or not states want to cede or be seen as ceding any of their sovereignty to an international institution that they can't quite control and that they don't quite understand and that they're very happy for these sorts of international crimes as and when they do occur to be dealt with at a domestic level.
1: But do you not think that that's the point of international criminal justice, actually?
0: I mean, I do. Those of us who work in this field and are proponents of the International Criminal Justice Project, the ideal for us is that all states sign up to the Rome Statute and everyone decides that crimes of this sort of gravity, it's important enough to have some sort of overarching jurisdiction at play.
1: What do you think can be done in order for that to be within some sort of reach?
0: People have to have faith in the court. You know, it's a really big deal for states to sign up and say, if anything ever went really wrong on my territory, I trust this prosecutor's office and this court to investigate and try and adjudicate these crimes. So the court needs to be seen as legitimate and relevant and safe and fair and not discriminatory. And the more states that sign up, the closer we are to achieving that.
1: Yeah, I guess the question is, should they believe that when it's publicly indicted 52 individuals in its 21 year history and they've been African or Arab? Kate, why did you decide to work defending those accused of serious international crime?
0: I didn't grow up wanting to do this. I didn't sort of dream of finding the people accused of the worst crimes in modern history and sort of fighting for them. It is something that I Really, sort of fell into. I was working as a lawyer in Australia in a large commercial law firm, and I didn't love it. I remember thinking, um, I'm not sure this is where I'm supposed to be. And I managed to get a scholarship to go and do a master's, an LLM in the UK. And so I took a year off from my law firm and I arrived at Cambridge University. And they do this thing where all the lecturers come and give sort of a five minute overview of their course. And I was supposed to be doing private international law subjects. And suddenly I'm hearing about, you know, international humanitarian law and international criminal law. I was like, how do I do that? You know, that sounds really interesting. And I sort of sneakily changed all my subjects. And by the end of my master's, I just was determined to try and find a way to work in this field and and never go back to my law firm. And I remember this is 2003, I remember just spending nights in the in the law library, just sending out applications to every international court I'd heard of and all the UN agencies. And I got one offer to be an intern at the newly established International Criminal Court in The Hague. And back then the internships were paid. And so I could do it. I packed up and I went to The Hague and then I was there in sort of the heyday of international criminal justice. Milosevic was on trial and I tried to, meet everyone and learn everything that I could and I ended up meeting this girl Caroline Bousman who is a Dutch lawyer and she told me she was working as a defence legal assistant at the the UN Tribunal for Rwanda in Arusha in Tanzania and she was working on the Bagasora case which sort of was the main military case at the Rwanda Tribunal against four high-ranking former members of the Rwandan Armed Forces who were essentially charged with being responsible for the 1994 Rwandan genocide. And I remember thinking, what? How is that your job? That is horrible. I cannot imagine even speaking to those people, let alone sitting next to them and trying to help them. That is such an awful job. And then my internship ended and, and Caroline, this same girl, had another trial on in the Hague. And she asked me to go down and fill in for her at a session at this Bagasora case in Arusha. And I, um, I had no other options. I was out of options and I really didn't want to do it. But I, I remember sort of printing out the indictment and, and reading it on the plane on the way to Tanzania and sort of learning about all the horrific things that my client, this general Kabaligi, had been charged of. And I just was thinking, why am I doing this? why am I going? And I landed in Tanzania at night. And I was 25. I'd never been to Africa before. I was so naive. And I had to go to this prison and meet this general. And I was terrified. I was so scared. I remember, you know, walking into this prison, there were these fluoro lights and all these moths flying around. it. I was absolutely terrified. And after two weeks, I remember thinking that the prosecution really didn't have a strong case against this general and sort of begging to stay on the team, which I did. I stayed with that team for, for several years. And it turned out that General Kabaligi was one of the best men I've ever met. You know, he was walking around during the genocide, tearing down roadblocks and and saving lives. And he was eventually acquitted at first instance. And the prosecutor didn't appeal his acquittal, which they can do, but they didn't. And that was sort of it. You know, after 11 years, this man had been in prison, walking with him out of the courtroom, sort of into the sunshine where his family was waiting for him. That was, you know, I was hooked. I was like, this is, I want to do this for the rest of my life, you know, using the law to try and get these outcomes. And, And that was the start of sort of 20 years. I've never been able to recreate that moment, I have to say. Um, but I've tried and and I've been doing the same job now since since then.
1: It's more often than not the case that the accused is convicted, right? I mean, it's very rare that the accused walks free. I
0: mean, we are not in it for the outcomes. When we're defending accused in front of these courts, you know, sometimes you have cases where you are really trying to demonstrate to the judges that They can't credibly draw a link between the crime base and your client. And other times you're working for a a much larger goal, which is, you know, fighting for the rights of the accused, regardless of of what the outcome is. I'm not going to say it feels the same (laughs) sitting there for for an acquittal and sitting there for a conviction. You know, that would be a lie. Um, Acquittals feel very different. There's something about watching someone receive a, a life sentence you know, the sort of the impact of of that in that moment, even if the outcome is right, is is still from a human perspective quite an overwhelming moment. Um, I see us as like a crucial part of this trial process and really contributing to justice just as much as our colleagues in the prosecution across the courtroom. You know, we're all trying to head towards the same goal, which is a judgment that's reflective of the truth. But we're accused of, you know, being revisionists or denying crimes or trying to rewrite history or, you know, get killers back on the streets. That's not what our job is. In its simplest form, our role is to test the evidence that's being presented by the prosecution so that when the chamber at the end of the day deliberates and makes findings of fact, They're making findings that are based on an evidential record that's been thoroughly tested by us if we've done our job. And that means that the judgments are real, right? And they can stand the test of time. And if you think about what the prosecutor is actually trying to prove in these cases, it's essentially three things. They're trying to prove that the crimes themselves occurred And that these are international crimes, secondly, that they, you know, rise to the level of of genocide or crimes against humanity or war crimes. And thirdly, they're trying to establish that this accused, that your client is responsible for them, that he's the one. I say he because in large part the, the defendants are male that he is the one who who ordered or planned or, you know, aided and abetted or was part of a conspiracy to commit the crimes. And our role often isn't to challenge all of those three things. The crimes that we're talking about happened, right? These, these are historical facts. You know, we're not getting up and saying, nothing went on in Rwanda or there weren't crimes in the former Yugoslavia. And oftentimes we're not challenging that they are crimes against humanity or, or war crimes. In some cases at the ICC, in, in the post-election violence cases in Kenya and Cote d'Ivoire, then that was an issue. Did the violence rise to the level of crimes against humanity? But most of the time Defence counsel aren't saying, you know, there wasn't a genocide in Rwanda. The majority of our work is much more limited. It's really focused on testing whether or not the prosecution can prove this link between our clients and the crime base. And that's a really specific task and we're not rewriting history or denying crimes, we're just pushing the judges to consider whether or not they can make a finding that our client is the one who's criminally responsible.
1: You're listening to Horsehair Wigs from me, Evelyn McCleverty, and Irish Rule of Law International in conversation this month with international criminal defence lawyer Kate Gibson. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing or giving it a rating. It's funded by Irish Aid and brought to you by Irish Rule of Law International, an NGO with its headquarters in Ireland and with programmes in Malawi, Tanzania and Zambia, namely. You can find out about its work on its website, irishruleoflaw.com. Ie, Back now to this month's guest, international criminal defence lawyer Kate Gibson, who picks up the conversation talking about what she believes are the main challenges of international criminal law.
0: I mean, we've spoken already about the selectivity of, of the cases. You know, you rightly point out that we don't have a real representation in front of the courts of the people who are out in the world committing these you know, horrific atrocities. So that's a failing. I think the main challenge that we face is a perception, you know, particularly among the states who fund the international courts and tribunals, that these courts were established to convict really awful people who we all understand anyway are guilty. The ICC's stated purpose is to prevent impunity for international crimes. And that mindset leaves very little room for people to be okay when when acquittals occur. And, And just because someone has been charged by an international court doesn't mean they're responsible and it doesn't mean that the prosecutor will be able to meet his burden or her burden. We've seen cases that have correctly, have rightly ended in acquittals and acquittals have to be able to happen, you know, if trials are fair. If there's a predetermined outcome, if the only possible outcome for international criminal trials is convictions, then then there's a problem. But that's not the mindset that people come with to the International Criminal Justice Project. And when we have acquittals or even we have charges that that are dropped, we see this huge outpouring of anger and and public statements of criticism and and disappointment from, from states and from the international community questioning what's gone wrong, you know, and, and urging that the courts make sure that these unusual circumstances don't happen again. And it's this mindset that these courts are here to convict people and give them life sentences that makes it really difficult for us to get any kind of cooperation from states or support for provisionally release accused or released defendants. And, and it's the reason why... Legal aid rates for the defence are so appallingly low because our work is sort of seen as working against the overall goal of the court, which is to convict people.
1: What happens to release and acquit people?
0: I'm I'm really glad you asked this question because this is, you know, one of the biggest failings I think of the international criminal justice project. It is that it was set up without any real plan being put in place for what would happen for people who were coming out the other end. And in some cases, and this this happened a lot in the former Yugoslavia, the former defendants would, you know, once they were released and having served their sentences, they would return home and they'd be reintegrated into society and and sometimes back into government structures. But for accused who come from countries where they don't want to return home, you know, from Rwanda, from the Congo, There is no system in place for them and they are absolutely stuck. They are stateless. They have no ability to support themselves, to rejoin their families. Sometimes they're illegally detained. And and the reason for this is that states who who might support international criminal justice don't yet see it as part of their role to give a home and and a chance at a dignified life to people who have formerly been accused. This is part of the problem with the mindset and the approach to international justice. Oh, well, you know, he was once a defendant so he's on his own. You know, he's not the kind of person we want to welcome into our country and states don't see it as part of their role to provide that sort of support to accused and former accused. And the courts are very happy to give themselves the power to detain people, you know, to deprive people of their liberty but they don't have a plan for what to do at the end. And then we have human rights problems, right? We have people who are deprived of their right to freedom of movement, to family life, you know, the right not to be arbitrarily detained because no forethought was given to this when the courts were established.
1: So it's double victimization.
0: I mean, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. And, and The solution is for states to say, okay, we are supporters of international criminal justice and that isn't just limited to locking people up. Part of our support has to be helping them reintegrate once they've been released. But we're not there yet. And it's a difficult constituency to advocate for. It's hard to get in front of states and say we have this problem with former accused. like They're not a sympathetic group of people in the eyes of states. But you can't just support a certain aspect of international criminal justice. You can't just say we're all for convictions and we're going to support that aspect. It's an entire project that states need to get behind.
1: How do you end up on a particular proceeding, Kate? Are you chosen by the accused? How, how does that work?
0: Yes, exactly. Essentially, the, the clients, the new um, people who are who charged and arrested and brought to the courts are given a list. There's a list of lawyers. The ICC has a list. It's public. It's on the website. I think there are about 900 lawyers on it last time I checked. And, you know, in order to get on the list, you have to meet certain criteria. You need 10 years of relevant experience and you have to be a lawyer of good standing. And But yeah, the clients are free to pick whoever they want.
1: Have you ever been confronted with um, rather tricky moments? For example, if alleged victims were present during a trial?
0: Yes, for sure. I think my whole professional life is just a series of excruciating moments. I don't see victims being in the courtroom as tricky. You know, victims are always in a trial they're they're really at the center of everything we're doing. And they're the reason that we're doing it. So, so they should be there. They should be following the trial as closely as they can, but there are many tricky moments for sure. I mean, often initially with the clients, you know, that process of meeting them and building trust with them and, and trying to get them to tell you the things that you need to know to be able to do your job and, and having to confront them, you know, when they don't and, and tricky moments inside the court as well. You know, many of the court staff really value and appreciate and, and respect the work of their colleagues in the defense, but some of them don't, you know, and that can be tricky and, and disappointing. And, you know, just tricky moments in life. If you go to the hairdresser and they're like, what do you do for a living? That's tricky. I always just lie. I say I'm in marketing or something because no one really wants to talk to you about genocide when you're getting your hair done. So there's, yeah, it's not a conventional job and it's, and it's a difficult one to describe, but for all the reasons that I, I've said, it's a really important one.
1: International criminal tribunals can end up costing millions, a billion in the case of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which you worked on. With that in mind, what kind of resources are given to defence teams in that?
0: I mean. Firstly, this this narrative that international criminal justice is really expensive, you know, it costs millions and that's right, it does. But compared with the money spent on, you know, weapons systems and election campaigning, you know, it's not a bad thing to be spending money on international criminal accountability. I guess it's really a question for the affected communities. Does the population in Rwanda or the Congo or the former Yugoslavia think that it's money well spent. That's that's probably the actual question. But in terms of how these resources are distributed, um, defence teams at the ICC are not given the resources they need to be able to effectively do their jobs. The legal aid scheme of the ICC provides far, far less for the defence than the schemes at the Rwanda Tribunal or the Yugoslavian Tribunal Um, You know, we earn a third less than our prosecution counterparts. We have no social protections, no sick leave, no maternity leave, you know, no health insurance. And you might be thinking like, why is she talking about her working conditions on a legal podcast? What's up? But it is important because this consistent underfunding of the defence means that the international criminal bar isn't diverse you only have people doing these cases who can afford to support themselves and live in Europe. So it makes it so much harder for lawyers from the Asia Pacific or Africa or South America or Ireland or anywhere to leave their national practice to pay for themselves and their families to move to the Netherlands, to leave all their social protections and start working for a salary that isn't enough to support a family living in the Hague. It's objectively not. So We're just missing out on any kind of diverse perspectives and experience, and as a legal community, we're really depriving ourselves of that, which is a shame for the entire field. So that's why this question is really pressing and important.
1: So there's not a huge amount of diversity then within that space?
0: Not at all, and it's something that we're sort of actively working on and trying to encourage lawyers from other jurisdictions to come and work with us the teams that I've been in that have been the most effective have been the most diverse you know it is ridiculous to think that I as an Australian lawyer can stand up and represent someone from the Congo who I might not even share a common language with without teammates and lawyers around me who have that level of language and cultural knowledge you know we're, we're mad if we think we can do that. But trying to get people to come to The Hague and, and work for this, these sorts of resources is a constant struggle.
1: I'm especially interested in your work, Kate, as lead counsel of Paul Rusesabagina, an outspoken critic of the Rwandan government. And he rose to prominence after being portrayed as a hero of the 94 Rwandan genocide in the 2004 film Hotel Rwanda. This is the case in which Rwanda's high court had accused him of terrorism. Can you tell us about the case? He's now in the US, I believe, after being freed from prison in Rwanda's capital, Kigali.
0: Yeah, he is. Um, I I loved working on this case. It was such a privilege to, to lead this team. And yes, you're right, Paul was released in March of this year, and he's slowly... Sort of recovering from the two and a half years he spent detained in Rwanda. Um, it's probably the most challenging case I've ever worked on, mainly because we couldn't get to Paul. We weren't allowed to visit him. Um, we weren't allowed to represent him in the terrorism proceedings in Kigali. Um, we couldn't speak to him on the phone. And so we were getting really alarming reports of, of his conditions of detention and his treatment and and his state of health. And because he was viewed in Rwanda as sort of an enemy of the state, our incredibly brave local lawyers in Rwanda were facing these huge, unimaginable, really, security risks. And we were also facing these waves of sort of abuse and attacks from the government and its supporters, which I think was really hard on Paul's children and his wife, any advocacy they did on his behalf was met with sort of abuse, even from high level government officials. And the level of, you know, trolling and physical and electronic surveillance of the family and the team was all new to me. I I hadn't experienced anything like that before. And it's difficult to do your job in those circumstances when you start to feel really nervous about your own kids and your own family and what you're exposing them to but you know in the end amazingly this this case had a good outcome and Paul was released and it's just been incredible spending time with him and being there when he walked off the plane yeah that that might even top my first case it was it was very emotional I was very proud of us and what we'd managed to achieve
1: I want to talk to you about you working with the United Nations fact-finding mission for Myanmar you're a legal consultant working to document crimes committed against the Rohingya since 2016 and um, we've spoken actually to Eva Buzo um, from Victim Advocates International about the, the plight of the Rohingya community and certainly their conditions within Cox's Bazar refugee camp what does that work Kate and how's it coming along
0: you know, I, I'm so happy to have a chance to talk about the Rohingya. I've just come back from the camps in Bangladesh, where a million people, a million Rohingya live in these, frankly, horrific camps in, in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. And, you know, you just mentioned 2016, this situation has been going on for years and years. And the Rohingya just keeps slipping down this list of of international priorities and and the situations that that everyone's talking about and you know they feel it they feel th- that the attention of the international community has is, is moved away from them and there was a lot of hope i think at the beginning that the proceedings before the international court of justice and and the icc would bring some measure of accountability for the crimes that were committed in 2016 and 2017 and for the Rohingya, that they could use these outcomes to try and move towards a safe and dignified return back to Myanmar. And it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. I think this is a, a key example of where international justice has failed the victim community up until this point. So I really hope that these proceedings can can be reprioritized and we can fit, keep moving forward and this situation can be turned around.
1: And again, Kate, do you believe that's political?
0: I don't think there's anyone who's actively saying let's deprioritise, you know, justice for the Rohingya.
1: But there's not necessarily anyone who's saying let's prioritise.
0: If it's being said, it's not being followed up with action. And you understand it. Look at what's happened in the last 18 months on the planet. Look at what's happening. You can see why the spotlight keeps shifting. And and why focus moves but we have these victim communities around the world and we've told them that international justice is what they need and it's coming
1: and then we can't just walk away from that. Kate thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. And that was international criminal and human rights lawyer Kate Gibson. That's it for the show this month. Thanks to you for listening and to our funders, Irish Aid. From me, Evelyn McClaverty and Irish Rule of Law International. Until next time, take good care.